welcome to Muscle Maven Radio. It's your girl, Ashley Van Houten. Thank you for joining me. I hope you're having a great summer so far, and I hope you're enjoying the episodes I've been putting out. I know that uh, it's maybe a little bit more varied and different than in its previous iteration as Paleo Magazine Radio, but still focusing on strength and health and happiness and food and muscles and all of the good things that I personally think are so important. But if there's somebody that you want me to interview, if there's a topic that you want me to cover, I need to hear about it. I need you to let me know. So reach out to me on Instagram at the muscle maven, send me an email. You can go to my website at ashleyvanhouten.com and all the information is there. You can sign up for my newsletter there as well, but reach out and just let me know what you're interested in, what you want to hear about. Cause otherwise I'm just going to keep talking to people that I'm interested in, uh, which is cool, but I'd like to help you guys out too. So let me know. All right. Today's episode is about the many forms that strength can take and also the power of perspective. And ultimately, it's just a conversation with a pretty remarkable human being who has been through more than most of us and has come out of it, I think, and I think she would say a stronger, wiser person. And I'm reminded again with this episode about how grateful I am to do this job where I get to connect with people like Nikki, my guest today, and make friends with these amazing people and just learn from such incredible, awesome human beings. And I really think that this podcast makes me a better person. It makes me a more well-rounded person, a person who is just increasingly and always and consistently curious and, and wanting to ask questions and learn and evolve. And I'm just really grateful for it. And this chat, as I'm sure you'll notice, covers a lot of very deep topics. Um, so sort of a pre-warning. There's a lot going on here that's pretty deep, but it's ultimately just a conversation between two women with a lot of shared interests, getting to know each other. And as a result of that, it was one of the more fun episodes I've recorded recently. And um, I just really appreciate Nikki. I hope to have her back on again soon, or at the very least be able to hang out, maybe do a workout in person, go to the beach, something nice, I hope. Um, so anyway, my guest, Nikki Balkow, she's a young woman, she's a power lifter. But as with all of us, she's a lot more than just the sport that she does. And we're, we're connected through mutual friends. And I started following her on social media maybe a little over a year ago. Um, and as I started to learn more about her and followed her journey through a diagnosis of leukemia in her late 20s, she was immediately a source of inspiration in terms of how openly and honestly she shared about her journey and her fears and the changes in her health and body and mental state. And of course, how she continued to train and work out throughout most of her diagnosis, her chemo, her recovery. There are videos of her. I watched videos of her at the hospital getting treatment with dumbbells and equipment. And just she just kept moving. She just kept working. And it was really, really inspirational um, to me and I know to a lot of other people. And Nikki is now newly, relatively newly cancer-free. But as anyone who has experience with cancer knows, that doesn't mean that she is really fully, completely free of it, either, you know, mentally or physically. And that, you know, getting that diagnosis and then getting this, this new, um, cancer-free sort of story, that's only part of it. Um, we also talk about her struggles with an eating disorder. We talk about her time going through a range of different sports and how they changed her perspective on her body and her own self-worth and how she's just growing and changing physically and mentally as a result of all of the things that she's been through. So it's a lot, right? 
and she's just so kind of open and transparent and human about the whole thing. I think that everybody listening can just gain a lot of perspective from this conversation. I really thank her a lot for sharing. So let's just dive into it. Okay. Here is my conversation with the strong in more ways than one, awesome Nikki Belkow. Hey, Nikki, here we are. We're on the podcast. Finally. Finally. Better, better late than never, but I appreciate it so much. I'm so excited to chat with you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I know you've been trying to do this for like six months, it feels like. Actually, it might be six months at this point. Yeah, and we, of course, ideally wanted to do this in person, and now the environment that we're in right now is making that not super easy, but we can maybe do a part two in person. Yes, I would love that. And I know when we were first planning to try and do this, this is before COVID had happened, and I was just finished with treatment, and some things came up where I wasn't able to make it into the city when you were in New York at the time. So definitely part two, we will do this in person. Yes. And I'm just going to be straight up to anybody who is watching this on YouTube that I definitely put on more makeup for this one because <laughs> I wanted to impress you because you always, <laughs> you always have just the best, just flawless, just flawless. Thank you. I'm, I'm, you know, when I'm interviewing dudes, I don't care if they don't know the difference. It doesn't matter. When they have no idea what you're looking at. They don't care. They don't know. So they would probably think this is just like, oh, you just kind of woke up. Like you look cute today. I'm like, no, this actually took this took a little bit of effort, but you know, you know, and oh yeah, God. I'm just, I'm like following your Instagram, just like obsessed with your eyebrows. Maybe we'll get there at some point. Oh um, my God. Thank you. This is the best compliment. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So now that the pleasantries are out of the way. So before I kind of get into the questions and stuff that I wanted to ask you, because so you and I, just to kind of preface this a little bit, you and I have only met in person once for like a half an hour. We met through mutual yeah. friends. And yep. it just kind of made sense that when you, you meet somebody that, you know, I think we have a lot of similar interests and values and, and personality really in a lot of ways. So we just kind of became Instagram friends and that's awesome. And, but we haven't really spent like a whole lot of time together. And I've kind of followed your journey as best I can through social media, which as we all know, is only part of the story. Right. Um, but what you have been, and you have been very um, transparent and, and straightforward about the things that you've been going through. And um, a lot of people I think are learning a lot from you and resonating a lot with what you're, you're putting out there. And so I wanted you to kind of just for our listeners who don't know you already to kind of just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about, you know, who you are and what's been going on for you for the past couple of years. Oh, well, the past couple of years, what a doozy. Um, so you've already introduced me, but my name's Nicole, Nikki, whatever you want to call me by. Um, I was 29 when I was diagnosed with acute myeloleukemia. Now, mind you, I have no family history. I haven't spent an outrageous amount of time in chemical exposure that I know of. Um, otherwise, perfectly healthy. I haven't been to a doctor in seven years. Like, I don't even have high blood pressure. Like, literally no health ailments ever in my life. Maybe the occasional flu. That's it. So all of a sudden, actually this time last year, um, or maybe a month before this time last year, but similar time frame, um, I started feeling really, really unwell. Um, and I'm kind of a hypochondriac. So for me to not address these symptoms when it was actually something serious is quite odd to me that I'm still trying to figure out like on a psychological level. Mm. But anyway, so I ignored all of my symptoms for 
about three to four weeks and I ended up being severely anemic. So I was extremely fatigued, um, had extreme heart palpitations, shortness of breath, um, no complexion whatsoever. So all the color was gone from my face and my, my nails, my, um, lips, everything. Um, I, it got so bad where I couldn't even make my own bed or like walk up a flight of stairs without needing to catch my breath and sit down. And I'm a very active person. I've always been an athlete. I've always been into exercise and sports. So for me to suddenly be so unwell was very concerning for me. Um, I ended up booking a vacation to Miami and just said, well, I've already had the vacation booked. I'll just go to the doctor afterwards. And by the time I got to Miami, um, I was in bed for mostly the entire trip with the exception of like two outings where I was just completely miserable. So I get home the next day I go to the doctor. The next day I'm admitted to the ER because I need two blood transfusions. So all of my blood levels, my hematocrit, my hemoglobin, my red blood cells, everything is tanked like in dire critical levels. So I'm in the ER, I get the blood transfusion. They say, oh yeah, you're severely anemic. I'm like, no, I'm not. Like, I, I don't have health issues. You don't understand. Like, I'm a healthy person. And they're like, no, no, we're going to refer you to a hematologist, blah, blah, blah. So I go there, get some tests run. This is the, over the course of maybe two to three weeks. A doctor calls me. So um, I'm saddened to tell you that you have leukemia. Well, that sucks. <laughs> like, I wasn't expecting that. Um, so yeah, so for the past year, yeah, the past year, I've been in active treatment. Well, I ended active treatment in October, so I've been recovering since, but for the greater part of 2019, I was in active treatment. I did chemo four times. I retrieved my eggs twice because one of the side effects of my treatment, um, can lead to infertility. I did eight rounds of total body radiation and one bone marrow transplant. <laughs> So that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's been a busy year. Are you, what's, what's your current status? I'm cancer free. So I'm in a full remission. Okay. I'm eight months post transplant. And aside from a couple of hiccups in the very beginning, which were all normal side effects and normal things that I expected to happen. So I got RSV virus, which usually only children get, but because of my transplant, I have a brand new immune system. So I'm basically a baby at this point. Um, so I got that and then GVHD, which is graft versus host disease. So it's my body attacking the donor cells and both are very, very common, especially in the first three to six months and even a year post transplant. So I had those two things occur right after my transplant, um, which were a little bit annoying, but Hey, it wasn't cancer. So I got through it. Um, and then since the beginning of this year in January of 2020, um, I've had no other bumps in the road and everything has been fairly smooth sailing in terms of recovery. Okay. It's amazing. All right. So I've got a lot of questions. First of all, <laughs> before we even kind of go back and talk about all of this, yeah. what is your sort of plan or approach moving forward? Like what do the doctors tell you is going to be your life moving forward? Is it something that you're going to always have to check in on? Are you going to be susceptible to certain things? How does that look for you? So with any, not just with my type of cancer, but with any type of cancer, once you go through the treatment, you are statistically at a higher risk of, of 
getting cancer again. And it can be a relapse of that same cancer, or it can be a secondary cancer, skin cancer being the, the number one secondary cancer that most patients get. Um, so there's a lot of things that I have to do and to stay on top of my current situation. Um, I'm currently down to only once a month doctor visits, which was a huge improvement from three times a week. Um, so that was three times a week, then it was every week, every other week, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I have to continue my checkups. I have to get all new vaccinations because I am a baby, essentially. So over the next two years, I'll get those. Um, sunscreen because of the skin cancer issue. And other than that, just monitoring how my health is, what my body feels like. And it's actually really interesting because before the cancer, I felt like I was really in control of my body and I knew what my body felt like. No, I had no idea. So now I'm hyper aware of every single thing that I am feeling. So God forbid, if I were to relapse or have an issue in the future, I think I'll be able to catch it ahead of time, but knock on wood, that is not an issue. Um, other than that, there are some long lasting side effects that I have to sort of address. So early menopause being one of them, which I am in now at 29, uh, 30, I'm 30 now. Um, so that kind of sucks and has a, a myriad of health issues that I now have to stay on top of in terms of, in terms of my hormones, um, bone density, thyroid, um, cholesterol, the list goes on and on. So that's one thing that I have to stay on top of diligently, um, as well as the fact that I am most likely infertile right now. So that's kind of a bummer also. But those are the two major things. Okay. So again, there's a lot going on. I'm taking notes here. Um, okay. So yeah, yeah. I want to go back to when you, your comment about like you were a bit of a hypochondriac and you experienced these very intense symptoms for the first time and kind of put it off in a way that was like not like you. Um, yes. And so, you know, I have um, obviously like probably most people listening have cancer in my family. My um, stepfather passed away from um, colon cancer in 2013 and I was very close to him and it was a uh, Obviously, you're, you know what this is like. It was an incredibly painful and heartbreaking and scary um, yes. thing to witness and be a part of. And, you know, the way that a lot of cancer works is that it's, it's, there's these ups and downs where you get these false hopes or you get these ideas that maybe, you know, things are going to be okay or they're not, or you've got more time or you've got less time. And it was just, it was awful. Um, but, but early in his um, experience he was really ill for a little while too and all of us you know him him included we were just kind of like you're like there was some kind of weird mental block that it's like i almost wonder if there's some some subconscious part of us that's saying like yeah shit i know this is serious in my bones and i just i don't want to look at it like do you think that there was a part of that or was it just you can't even explain why you reacted the way you did no, absolutely. I think that's exactly what happened because I think deep down that I knew exactly what was going on um, to a degree. I think I knew that it was serious because when I'm in the gym squatting and I have to sit down in between every single set because my vision has gone black and I can't breathe, that's not normal for an otherwise healthy fit individual. So to me, that was quite alarming. And when my vision was going blurry in and out and I could no longer see long distances, 
um, that was concerning. That's also not normal, but I tried to brush it off like maybe I'm anxious, maybe I'm depressed, maybe I'm drinking too much caffeine. Mm -hmm. I wish I was drinking too much caffeine. <laughs> But I, I do think on some level, I knew how serious it was and I put it off for as long as I possibly could. Um, in hindsight, I obviously wish I had not done that because had I caught it even a couple of weeks earlier, I may not have been as serious of a case. Um, but, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. So in terms of this early menopause thing, because I, you know, on this podcast, I talk to a lot of uh, women's health experts and doctors and just women in general who have yeah. been through all of the fun <laughs> phases of life that we get to look forward to. How do you know that this is what you're experiencing now is classified as early menopause versus just hormones being out of whack because of what you've been through? Like, how do you know, like, how do you classify it one way or the other? So they tell you going into treatment that this will happen. They don't say if, they say when. Um, I personally don't like to work in absolutes. I think that there's always a small percentage of everything to be the opposite of what they say, especially when it comes to medicine, because there are rare and extraordinary cases. Do I think I am a rare and extraordinary case? Not particularly, but I know that there's a lot of new therapies and a lot of new regenerative, regenerative medicine that's coming about that can maybe help some of these ailments. In any case, um, they told me that was going to be an issue. So I took it upon myself to see an endocrinologist um, five months post-transplant when they say that theoretically this is when you should be experiencing these early menopause symptoms. Um, you may become irritable, have hot flashes, um, feel fatigued, but just generally feel a little bit out of whack, which I did. And my hot flashes were out of control. Like every two seconds, it felt like I was burning alive. And it's not just a feeling of being hot and humid and sweaty. Like you feel like you are burning from the inside out. So that sucks too. <laughs> so I visited an endocrinologist. Um, I got a full hormone panel. I wanted to see exactly where everything was at before starting any hormone therapy because this is the one caveat of um, recovery in most cancer patients that I think is severely lacking. There is not enough education or direction on how to address these issues. I got no direction from my team. They told me to visit my OBGYN. They put me on a birth control pill and that would be it. And at the time, I'm like, I feel like there's something more than just that. Like, there's more that we as women can do to combine Western Eastern medicine practices to optimize our health as much as possible in this one scenario and others. So I went to my endocrinologist, got all my levels. Uh, my estrogen is very low. My FSH and my LH are very high, which confirms that I am in menopause. So Long story short, I just got blood work done. Right, okay. And how does the early menopause affect your fertility? Like I know I, I, I have friends who are sort of in this process of either trying to have a baby or uncovering any fertility issues that they may be having or whatever. Um, is there a way for you at this point to tell like definitively, like it's gonna be very difficult for you to conceive naturally or, or can you do that while in menopause? How does that work? Um, so it will be difficult for me to conceive naturally, if not impossible. Um, again, I don't like to work in absolutes because I have heard so many stories of women who were told that they're infertile, especially after cancer treatment, especially after radiation, and then boom, they conceive a child on their own. 
Um, I hope that is the case for me. So I'm being as proactive as I can um, in researching all the natural things that I can do to greater my chances down the line. Um, but that's also part of why I froze my eggs initially in the off chance that I am not successful in that endeavor, that I can still potentially have my own biological children, assuming there are no issues with the eggs when I'm ready to use them. Right. Okay. So one of the things that, um, really, I feel like inspired a lot of people, inspired a lot of women, but everybody, when you were going through chemo and you were posting videos of your workouts at the <laughs> hospital doing chemo. So if anybody wants to feel bad for themselves or feel like, eh, I don't really feel like working out today, like watch these videos. You're going to feel like a real asshole. Um, but you like, I want to, I actually want to like get into this. There's two sides of this that I really want to get into. And I want to not forget to talk about one is your, your, um, powerlifting sort of career. That's one side. And then also how you've chosen to share your um, story and your journey on social media. So when this happened, when you got this diagnosis and you're going through this process, was it always a thought like, I'm just going to share as I normally would on social media? Or do you think like I have a unique opportunity to teach people? Or did you think I don't really want to do this, but people are going to be asking me like, what was your approach to sharing what was going on? Um, it was kind of a mix of all of that. So in the past, I have always been quite open on my social media, just like with anything that I have been through. Um, I think social media can be a really vapid place. And I feel like if you have the opportunity to share your story that may help others, um, and you have any kind of platform, I feel like it's almost an obligation. So when I was first diagnosed, I honestly didn't even think about it. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to share my story. I'm not going to share my story. I kind of just did it as things went along. I just kind of rolled with the punches. And as things were happening, I found myself posting on Instagram. And um, with that, it ended up being really therapeutic for me to talk about it, to share. And at the time, in the beginning of my treatment, I felt really alone, as I'm sure anybody would in that situation, regardless of their support system. And I found myself connecting with all these amazing people, men, women, children, or parents of children who had gone through similar situations. And it completely opened my eyes to what is out there in terms of like the cancer world. And then everyone's telling me, Oh, you're so inspirational. You're this and that, which kind of makes me cringe whenever so someone says that to me. Cause I'm like, I don't want to like, I don't know. It just makes me really nervous and uncomfortable. But they were telling me all these amazing things. And I'm like, wow, like, I don't really think that I'm that inspirational, but I apparently have a platform that is helping people and sharing my story and allowing myself to be vulnerable on this huge platform. Not that my platform is so huge, but social media as a whole, like that's kind of a really unique opportunity that a lot of people don't necessarily have. And then as treatment and recovery kind of went on over the, the course of the next handful of months, I then kind of changed my tune where I felt like I had an obligation to share my story and not even just my story, but more information, be an advocate for women's health, for cancer survivors, all these things that a lot of people who may not have been touched by cancer directly or indirectly would not know otherwise. And I think it's really important for everybody as a whole to understand what treatment is like, what recovery is like, because a lot of people that aren't touched by cancer 
sometimes don't have the most politically correct way of speaking to a cancer patient. Um, and it can be really offensive and upsetting to a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I kind of felt like it has been my responsibility to spread more education and information out there. Yeah, I, I love that. And especially sort of in the greater context of, I don't really want to go down this rabbit hole, but some other things that are happening in the world today and conversations mm-hmm. around sort of just ignorance or conversations yeah. around being complicit by being silent and all of these things, right? And you have been pretty outspoken um, on social media about like, here are the things you don't say to someone who has cancer, who is recovering from cancer, who is growing their hair back, who lost their hair, who gained weight, who lost weight, all of this stuff. And I think it's, it was, it's so valuable. Um, and I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit about that specifically. So people who are listening and who are thinking like, oh shit, like I have a friend who's, you know, recovering from something. Did I say the wrong thing? Like talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you got the most and what you think could be helpful for people to know who just don't really know any better, honestly. Right. So I think it's first really important to understand that everybody deals with everything, but particularly cancer differently. So what may be offensive to me may not be offensive to the next person and vice versa. So I think it's important to know that when someone is going through cancer, cancer treatment, whatever the case may be, um, to try to put yourself in their shoes and not necessarily try to relate to them, which I think a lot of people by nature try to do. So in the beginning, I got a lot of, oh, my aunt went through cancer. I know exactly what you're going through. Well, no, you don't. You have an understanding. You have been touched by cancer in an indirect way, but you don't know what it's like to think you are going to die and to have faced your own mortality because that is just a completely different ballgame but I digress. Um, and they would say things like, Oh, my, my uncle or my grandmother had cancer and they died, but you know, good luck to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, Oh, thank you. I thanks. Like there are some things that you just can't respond to. Or when you are now bald, when you had long, thick, beautiful curly hair (laughs) like I had and all of a sudden you have no hair and people um, think it's appropriate to rub your head or touch your hair when it starts growing back. I don't know about you. I personally don't prefer to be pet by strangers or even acquaintances. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you got to think like, and this isn't excusing anybody for any obnoxious behavior, but there is, like you said, even really specifically to, to cancer, there's so much um, discomfort and fear yes. because it's one thing to say you broke your leg, right? And I come to the hospital and I can kind of joke with you or like, rip, like oh, you've, you know, be more careful on your bike next time because this isn't a life or death thing, right? But when you're dealing with something that is as serious and life-changing as what you're dealing with, people have no idea how to relate to you. And I feel like they have to say something, but what do I say that's okay? And like you said, I, you know, I've talked to different people who are like, some people, I want you to make it light and joke with me. And some people, I want you to, to, you know, bury your soul and tell me your experiences too. So we can be vulnerable together. And because everybody wants something different, I wonder if it's almost, is it okay for somebody, for for a friend or, you know, somebody who thinks of themselves as a friend to ask you like, what do you want to, like, what kind of conversation do you want to have? Like, what can I do? Like, what can I say? Like, is it okay to kind of ask the question or, you know, okay. 
And I was actually going to get into that, so I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, I think that's the number one thing that everybody can do because everyone responds to things so differently. And honestly, it doesn't even have to be something offensive that somebody says to you that can set you off. For me, in the beginning of my treatment, I was so angry and mad and depressed and just, you know, all of these emotions that even somebody asking me, hey, how are you, which doesn't seem like an offensive thing to say, would completely set me off and I would be irritated by people asking me how I was. So the complexity of, you know, the human brain and psychology and all the things that go into the psychological component of receiving a cancer diagnosis, I mean, you could say, hey, the sun is shining, it's a beautiful day, and I could tell you to go scratch. Like, so I think it's really, really important for first things first to say something along the lines, how can I help? What do you need? How can I be there for you? Put it on the other person. And there's a lot of people that may need something, may want something and may not say it. But in that case, you have at least extended the olive branch and you have put the opportunity out there or the option out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're t we talked about sort of the therapeutic effects of, of sharing some of this and having these conversations um, online. What else um, what else have you done from a sort of healing mental health perspective to work through the absolute mindfuck, I just got to say it, of being, <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. Yes, of being a healthy young woman who is suddenly given like a potentially life or death diagnosis. Like that is hugely traumatic and it's not something that goes away even when you get better, right? Yeah. So what are some things that you've done to kind of just work through it from a like emotional mental standpoint? Um, honestly, I've been reading a lot. And I've always been an avid reader. I really enjoy reading books and learning new things, but I always read like novels and kind of like sci-fi stuff, murder mysteries, you know, I've never really read like self-help type of books or things that would expand like my uh, introspection and all of that. So the first book I read, which was actually recommended to me by one of our mutual friends was The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. It's a good one. And I don't say this lightly when I say that that book changed my life. And it, I mean, I think it was a conjunction of that and like my new perspective on life following being diagnosed. Um, but combined, I feel like I looked at the world completely different and I just, had, sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> oh, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta bring her into the, uh, scene at some point. Yeah. Here she is. Where is <laughs> Hold she? on. Can you see her? Layla. Oh, I'm going to get her. She's, she's one of my, also one of my favorite things about your social media. So Layla, sit. you gotta be involved. Good girl. Okay. Here she is. We're just taking a, there we go. Oh. <laughs> this is why I love doing, um, video interviews now because there's usually one to two cute dogs in every interview, which makes me really happy. It makes it all worth it. Right. <laughs> so good. So good. Yeah. Um, um yeah. Yeah. So that book totally it just changed how I dealt with obstacles because prior, like I was always more of a glass half empty kind of person. Um, and I feel like I am now a glass half full type of person. So I saw it as an opportunity for me to change how I deal with things, how I cope with things, how I just live in general. And I thought that it was really important for me to keep my mental health as strong 
or as strong as I could, just as important as it was for my physical health. And I internally, I thought it was the only way that I would be able to get through this horrible, horrible thing that was happening to me was to like really use it as an opportunity to change and become better. Yeah. So I read a lot and I journaled a lot. Um, I slowed down my lifestyle. I mean, I also had to, but even when I was feeling better and had bouts of my energy and strength back, um, I just kind of took a step back from the world and slowed down and tried to create more inner calmness, inner peace, and just appreciate the small things for what they are. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> I don't want to talk too much about pandemic coronavirus stuff because I'm just so tired of Over it. <laughs> thinking about it. Um, but obviously this had to have had a different impact on you, somebody who's, you know, immune compromised and somebody yeah. who, you know, you were going through all of this stuff, you were slowing down and stepping back and doing something that now we're all kind of being forced to do. So mm -hmm. how has this situation that's still playing itself out, how has that um, changed your sort of um, recovery or training or mental health or has it, have you kind of you're doing all right because you were sort of used to this sort of lifestyle or what? Like, how is well, it? Well, that's the thing. Um, I was used to this with the exception that I am now told I can't leave my house. And I quite frankly don't like being told what to do. I'm a little bit of a problem with authority, but that's a different conversation. Um, but in terms of like not being able to go to work and leave the house and just kind of chill, that's old news to me. So I was used to that from that perspective. Um, it did affect me in the beginning. I mean, it still is now because I had gone back to work uh, full time the month before COVID really hit and before the lockdown was ordered in New Jersey. Um, and in a weird way, it was honestly a blessing because I went back to work way too soon. I was not physically or emotionally ready to handle it. Um, so I was partly thankful. I know that sounds horrible to say, but thankful that it happened when it did, because I had the opportunity to stay home, really rest, really recover, kind of get my shit together before I have to go back to work. Um, at this point, I'm very over it. And I would like to start living my life after not being able to do so for so long. I was supposed to be in Europe last weekend, seeing Eric Clapton in Prague. So I'm a little bit salty about the fact that I am not there. Um, there are worse things going on in the world as it pertains to Corona. So I think I'll survive, but yeah, I mean, otherwise I'm honestly doing okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my uh, my sad concert story is um, here in Ottawa. We have uh, Blues Fest every summer, and it's like a week long <laughs> festival. It's actually like really legit. There's always like a couple very huge bands. It doesn't have anything to do with blues, really. It's just like it's like a week long like Oshega, except you don't have to be like. 21 and on drugs and outside for five days straight. Like you can kind of just like go in and come out. It's like for adults, which is really nice. But this year, um, Alanis Morissette was headlining. <gasps> yeah, exactly. So I'm like, all right, I know first world problems, but still I'm definitely mourning it. Cause yeah, it hurts my soul for you. I know, but you know what? I'm thinking it's maybe just fully postponed until next summer. I think that's what they're saying. So maybe you can come to, uh, Ontario and get I would love that I love her that'd be yeah. fantastic and there is kind of an interesting interestingly uh significant meathead powerlifting strength bodybuilding community in Ottawa I'm not sure if you're super um familiar, yeah but like we obviously again have like some friends in common who are sort of from around this area and like when I was doing um 
bodybuilding. And I actually, I'm from Nova Scotia, which is the East coast of Canada. And that oh, nice. yeah. So that province actually, like if I were to name like the two kind of hubs for bodybuilding in Canada, it's basically like Ontario and Nova Scotia. And I always felt like Nova Scotia is because we didn't really have anything better to do. It's kind of like, small, <laughs> like whatever you just either, you know, you get into drugs or you get into bodybuilding one or the other. But, um, right. Ontario for some reason is like kind of a, a big scene here so um you might have some, yeah you might have there's some good gems and stuff for you to check out but. yeah I would love to come yeah um okay so I want to get into the powerlifting but first I want to talk about you had mentioned that you were doing a lot of research on sort of healthy holistic um you know combinations of east meets west kind of treatments um so above and beyond what you're doing mm -hmm. medically what mm -hmm. are some things that you're doing either from like a dietary or a supplement or just like a lifestyle perspective that you feel is kind of helping you with your health so i have to admit i have a ton of videos and articles saved that i saved not actually dove into yet um about more holistic approaches that I really wanted to have a better understanding of by this point, but I don't because the chemo brain post treatment has been horrific. And only now have I really begun to like get my focus and my memory back. Um, they don't warn you about that, by the way, that, Hey, after treatment, you're still not going to be able to remember shit or focus for longer than five, 10 minutes at a time. So I have a ton of research that I'm waiting to dive into. So I wish I could give you more like, technical scientific information, maybe in part two. Um, in the meantime, I've totally changed my diet. Um, I've never been like a fad dieter or tried to like follow like paleo specific, keto specific, um, all the different types of diets there are. I've focused more on introducing anti-inflammatory foods, um, foods that will have like more antioxidant properties to them. Anything that I can do to better my chances of not relapsing. And even if I didn't have a cancer history, I think for anybody, those are important properties to have into their diet. Um, I focused a lot on that. I have been paying much more attention to the supplements that I take. So I take collagen a lot for my nails, my skin, my hair growth, um, which honestly, I think has really helped because they told me that my hair wasn't supposed to grow back for three months after treatment. It grew back a month after. Nice. And I started taking collagen immediately. So I don't know all of the studies behind it, but from my own personal experience, I think it's really helped. Um, I take fish oil, ashwagandha, which I am a huge, huge advocate of. So pretty much anything that can kind of put my body into more of a homeostasis. Okay. And besides that, just lots of sleep, lots of exercise as much as possible while confined to the four walls of my apartment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. How about, how about sleep? Has sleep been a, a challenge or has it changed uh, since you've been dealing with health issues or do you sleep okay? How does that work? Oh, I sleep terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I, I sleep better now. Um, but one of the side effects from treatment and the laundry list of medications that I've been on, um, is insomnia. So I would stay awake until 3am, pass out for two hours, wake up and I'm up for the entire day exhausted. Um, or I would pass out right away. I'd wake up in two hours, be up since 3am for the following 
day. Um, now my sleep is much better now that I'm off of those medications, but it's, it's still a hit or miss. And would you have to be, I would imagine you'd have to be sort of extra careful about like, for example, I get to play around with a lot of these things because I kind of think it's fun and I like experimenting with different like herbal supplements or whatever. Like it's just, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't necessarily move the needle, but like if you get a chance to experiment and you kind of have everything else figured out, it's sort of fun, right? Yeah. Um, but I would imagine that if you were going to play with some of the like supplements that I'm playing with for nighttime that you'd have to like double cross check all these things to make sure it's not going to have some kind of weird effect on whatever. And that's like, it gets to a point where you're like, is it even like worth it doing? Cause I don't know. Like, so for example, like, cause I have a cocktail of stuff to get me to sleep because that's always been my struggle too. Yeah. Um, and so, and I try to do my best to like cycle in and out of things that I'm not just like, you know, taking melatonin every day for two months or whatever. But, um, a couple things that I found that have really been effective for me is, um, L-theanine. I don't know if you've messed with that at all. I haven't, but I've heard of it. Okay, we can talk like offline. I can send you just some stuff so you can even like look into it a little bit further. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank um, you. L yeah, L-theanine is really good. Um, uh, valerian, have you tried this one? I haven't, but I've heard of that as well. Yeah, valerian. And then obviously CBD, which everybody, you know, but I I've noticed a pretty significant difference, especially when combined with THC, which again, we can maybe talk about offline. Yes. Um, <laughs> what was another one? But yeah, I mean, I, what I'm saying is it, I guess it just makes it, it's like that extra step for you that you have to be like, okay, well, is Valerian going to like mess with whatever else is going on? And yeah, it kind of makes it more tough. Initially, my doctor prescribed me some medications to help put me to sleep and so put me on Ativan, which I'm telling you works like a charm, knocks me out right away. I loved it. But I have a weird thing with like all the medications that I'm on. I don't want to be on anything that I don't absolutely need to. And not that Ativan isn't necessarily bad for you, but it was just like one more prescription medication that I had to take. And I'm trying to get away from as much of that as I possibly can. Yeah. Obviously there are still some medications that I have to be on for the foreseeable future that I can't wiggle my way out of. Um, so I've tried more supplementation in terms of things to get me to sleep. I also didn't want to become addicted to it, which I don't know if it has addictive uh, properties, but I found myself relying on it a little too much. So since I've been playing around with melatonin and ZMA um, and all the other little tricks they tell you to do, they, uh, you know, limit your, your exposure to screen time before bed, dim the lights after a certain hour of the day, you know, all of those tricks and tidbits that do help when they're all implemented uh, together. Sorry, guys, I'm interrupting my own damn self here to tell you about today's show sponsor. And before you skip through, I got to tell you, this one is offering the biggest discount of any of them at 20% off. So maybe listen to this one. I'll keep it brief. Okay. All right. Bubs Naturals is my only source for collagen and MCT powder. And look, I'm nothing if not consistent with the things that I love, right? Basically, my life is held together by collagen, coffee, chocolate, and organ meats. What else do you need, really? But anyway, Bubs makes the best collagen of all of the kinds that I've tried, which is a lot. It mixes better than basically any other product. Uh, their MCT powder goes into my coffee every morning and makes it delicious and creamy and full of healthy fats, which is great for people who are trying to, I don't know, stick to a lower carb thing, a keto thing. If you're trying to compress your eating window and you want to have something to tide you over in the morning, it's perfect. Um, the company also gives a full 10% of their earnings to a charity that's 
supports military veterans, which is a cause near and dear to my heart. Um, and that's basically unheard of in the industry to give that much money to a philanthropic purpose. But they're basically a company that focused on giving back first before making money, which honestly is very unique today. So they just happen to make really great products. So go to bubsnaturals.com, use the code muscle maven, get some collagen for your gut health and your beauty, get some MCT to support those low carb goals. And you're doing something to help the world and make it a better place at the same time. So bubsnaturals.com code muscle maven for 20% off. And now back to the show. But yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, yeah, let's, cause this is like a subject that I like have just been, that's been like my main, if you look at like all the big, like nutrition, sleep, stress, like exercise, whatever sleep has always been my biggest challenge. And so it's the thing that I spent the most time researching about. So we let's like talk later about some other stuff. Totally. Um, <laughs> not even going to be really excited about what we're talking about offline. Um, I have a funny out of van story too. So I, uh, it's so funny. I think when it comes to like anxiety and just dealing with like life and being a human, we all think that the way we feel is like unique to us. And we, you know, so if you feel alone or if you feel anxious or if you feel weird or like displaced, like we all think like, Oh, it's just me. And I'm just going to shut up about it. Cause nobody else, when everybody yeah. feels these things at different times and in different ways. And I've always for the longest time kind of prided myself on my ability to kind of keep anxiety at bay generally. Like I'm not in the run of a day, a typically anxious person. I'm relatively high strung, but like, I'm not like, I'm not anxious. Yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm not like scared to talk to people. I'm not scared to try new yeah. things or go places or get on a plane or move my life or all of these things. Right. And so I was working under the illusion for a long time, but I'm like, I don't have anxiety. Like I got problems. I got lots of problems, but I don't think anxiety is one of them. Right. And then I realized, wait a minute. And this literally took me to my thirties to figure this out. I was like, Oh wait, the fact that I can never go to sleep ever guess what? That is me compartmentalizing my anxiety to bedtime. Yeah. Like I just, I literally never clued in. I was just like, Oh, I'm just not a, I'm not a good sleeper. Like I literally yeah. didn't even, you know, put the pieces together that this was absolutely anxiety. Cause I would literally go to bed and you know, like the memes on Instagram where it's like, Oh, let's just scroll through every terrible, stupid thing I've ever done. <laughs> every terrible thing that could yes. ever happen. And like, that was just my life. I'm like, okay, so that's me every night. <laughs> right. But I think, I honestly think like the awareness of like maybe why you're doing it or like what's actually happening helps because now I can try and like take some of that struggle that I'm having and put it in a more, um, productive part of my day. So if I try to do some like mindfulness or some meditation or just some like journaling or something, I'm doing that. Like I'm trying to take that thing that isn't working for me anymore and put it somewhere else to try and be more productive with it. I mean, it, it works sometimes like I'm getting better at it, but, um, <laughs> but it's just so funny anyway, but back to the Ativan thing. So yeah. <laughs> I moved, I went to, I grew up in, in Canada. I went to university in Canada. And then when I graduated my undergrad degree, I moved to Bermuda. That's where my mother's from. And she did not want me to go. This is another whole story. And she never listens to my podcast. That's so fine. But she, <laughs> she did not want me to go because she has like her kind of like family drama. She didn't want to, she didn't really want to go back to Bermuda and she didn't really want anybody else going. So of course I got a Bermudian boyfriend in university and was like, naturally, I'm leaving naturally. And she was not pumped about it. And she was giving me a really hard time when I was moving. And of course, you know, I'm, I was how old, like, I guess I was 22. Um, oh, so we make great decisions at 22, don't we? Well, exactly. I mean, listen, it actually, the boyfriend, that's meh, but like moving to Bermuda, I do not regret it. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> It was a big deal. Like I like literally graduated university and was like, I'm moving to a different country. I'm gone. Right. And I didn't have a job and it was all very intense. 
but my mother made me feel really bad and she was like stressing me the hell out and um <laughs> as mothers remember, do yes and I remember the night before I uh left and I was getting on a plane at like four in the morning and I was like literally freaking out and I don't usually do that and I was like okay I you know you gotta help me out and I took some of her out of it she gave me like and I think I don't even know like you're supposed to take like half a pill or something and I took like twice the dose and I was oh, like what I was like oh shit it's wow. great I'm telling you <laughs> I was like I get it I get why people want to numb themselves though really yes. and like medicate against your feelings I get it and I was like I just feel like so long and I'm sure you can relate to this too that there are people who are different levels of functionality with their sickness or with their illness or with their anxiety, right? Like some people absolutely shut down and can't function. Some people function so well that people don't believe them when they say they have an issue, right? And yeah. so I think for the longest time, I was just so good at hiding my anxiety that I, I even convinced myself I didn't have it, right? <laughs> and then when you like actually have an experience where it kind of starts to like level you out in a different way and you're like, holy shit like yeah. this is what it's anyway crazy no, that so, makes yeah. perfect sense <laughs> yeah yeah okay so that was my like little aside um <laughs> let's, let's talk about let's talk some more about strength and powerlifting and stuff so okay. you how long have you been doing it uh since 2014 okay what got you into it um an old boyfriend who okay. the boyfriend kind of sucked but <laughs> got you into powerlifting yeah but um i was Training in a gym, I was living in Boston at the time. Um, I had just gotten out of another relationship when I was living in New Jersey, and I'm like, eh, screw this, peace, I'm out. Uh, moved to Boston within a two-week time frame. Anyway, so I'm at this new gym. I start training with this guy. We're starting to date, whatever, talk, hang out, whatever you want to talk, call it, at 23, 24 years old. And he's like, hey, have you ever considered, you know, competitively powerlifting and I'm like um you're high because at the time I'm like 120 pounds I'm recovering from an eating disorder like mm. I didn't think that I was like a physically strong person and I'm like no like I've been a dancer I've played basketball although not very well um I've played tennis also not very well um like those are the types of sports that I've been involved in like I'm not a powerlifter He's like, no, no, you should really consider it. So he starts training me. I'm like, all right, this is kind of fun. I'm getting stronger. Like, let's, like, whatever. The heck with it. Let's see what happens. So I dump him because he ended up sucking. And I <laughs> trained I myself. weight already. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I started training myself for my first powerlifting meet with, uh, with a friend of mine at the time. And I did it. I was not good at all. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I, this is my first competition and I went into it. It sucked, but I'm like, holy shit, this is a lot of fun. Like this really gets my blood going, my adrenaline pumping. And from there I was honestly hooked. I couldn't stop competing. I competed, I think eight times in two years or something ridiculous like that. I mean, since then, I think I've done close to 15 competitions, but I mean, that's what got me into it. Can you tell me your best lifts? Uh, best squat is 308. Best um, bench is 148. And best deadlift is 360. Now, the 360 deadlift, um, I have not done in competition. I did after three chemo treatments. So <laughs> I okay. think that's important to note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's arguably much more impressive. Um, yeah. What about, is it the same, did you like always compete in the same weight class? 
Um, I've always mostly competed in the 132 weight class. I think twice I have done the 148 weight class. I just didn't feel like cutting because um, I've cut weight for almost every single meet and it is exhausting. Yeah. Um, but mostly with the 132 weight class. Okay. Let's talk about the eating disorder. So what, what was that and where did that come from? Um, I was anorexic from, I think, senior year of high school up until my mid-20s or early 20s. Um, I developed bulimia my, a year after college. So I was anorexic and bulimic off and on, both together, whatever, uh, for probably six or seven years. Um, I personally think it came from my childhood trauma. My um, stepdad assaulted me when I was a child for consecutive number of years. Um, he is also in prison, by the way, which I am quite pleased with. Mm. Um, but I think it came from that. Um, and then eventually I sought, sought help. I got myself healthy, got myself better. Um, and I obviously haven't relapsed in that area since. Okay. All right. I mean, we could talk for literally like ever. So I'm going to try. Okay. So there's going to be a part three. There's <laughs> got to be. Um, do you feel like, so you mentioned that you were a dancer. What kind of dance were you into? Um, I did tap, hip hop, jazz, point, lyrical, ballet, contemporary. Okay. So lots. Okay. Yes. So, you know, there's always this conversation about certain sports attracting a certain kind of whatever. And I've talked like at length about the dysfunction in bodybuilding, obviously, like that's kind yeah. of a no brainer, but dance is another big one that seems to either attract people with unhealthy body image or, or mm -hmm. attitude towards eating and also create that. Do you think yes. that there was any kind of overlap there? Do you think you found that because it was a body type you were chasing? Do you think that exacerbated it? What, what do you think happened there? For me, I don't think that's why I got into it. So I started dancing at seven um, and it was my stepsister who I wanted to follow suit. And she was a dancer and I just thought she walked on water and she was the most amazing dancer I've ever seen. So I naturally wanted to get into that because of her. I had previously done ice skating lessons for a couple of years before. And I'm like, well, I'm going to ditch the skates and throw on the ballet shoes. So that was sort of a natural progression for me. Um, I didn't have the experience that a lot of ballet dancers have where their masters or teachers are harping on them to be thinner, to have longer extension, longer legs, smaller waist, like no boobs, all these things. I was very lucky in that regard, um, but I put an immense amount of pressure on myself to look a certain way in these tiny little dance outfits, in these tights and leotards where they are not forgiving whatsoever. So for me, I think it was more internal than external, but I have heard so many stories and talked to so many other dancers that have felt pressure from their teachers to lose weight and to be skinnier and thinner and lighter in the air and all of these things. So I think it's twofold and it can be the best of both worlds, honestly. Okay. I don't want to gloss over what you talked about with the trauma that you had when you were a kid and with your, your stepdad. I don't want to pretend that you didn't say that. And I share, <laughs> I, I appreciate that you shared something that is incredibly personal and intense. I don't think that we kind of have the scope to maybe talk about that fully right now. So I just want to like acknowledge and thank you for sharing that part of it because the stuff oh, it's, my all, pleasure. it's all layered and it's all important, but I just, yeah. I kind of want to just move forward and talk a little bit more about the, 
the eating disorder as it relates to sports and as it relates to body image, because I think sure. that's something that is very, um, it's something that I'm kind of always talking about, or, you know, I think it's very important for a lot of the women who listen to this. Yes. And so, and it was something that I really wanted to ask you specifically, um, about powerlifting, but going back to the eating disorder. So you get into powerlifting and part, a big part of it, like you said, is sometimes for a lot of people, weight cutting. So yeah. how were you able to navigate that with this background of like disordered feelings about food? I can't say it was the smartest move on my part. Um, I think I handled it, handled it about as well as I could, but as I competed more and more, and as I had to cut more and more weight, um, I found myself very hyper-focused on the scale and needing to be at a certain weight at all times of my life, even if I'm six months out from a competition, which to, in my opinion is not a healthy approach. Um, and it doesn't establish a good relationship with your body nor with food. And food is great. Like I love to eat and I think everybody loves to eat. Like food is delicious. Why would you want to restrict yourself? Um, so I had to really pay attention to certain triggers, to certain things that I knew would set me off that would potentially lead me back down to where I was before, before I was in recovery for that. Um, it's just more being really aware of certain triggers and certain things that can set you off. And also knowing your boundaries and knowing what you can and cannot do. Like for me, I was actually interested in bodybuilding before I got into powerlifting. And I thought, you know, the sparkly suits and the high heels and these women are like ripped and look phenomenal. And I'm like, holy shit, this is really cool. And then I'm like, wait, I don't know if this is the best course for me. And even today, if someone were to ask me to do a, a bodybuilding competition, I mean, I've been recovered um, for six or seven years now, and I still would not do it. Yeah. And I think it, you have to be, I don't know a ton about the bodybuilding world, so I don't want to talk out of my scope here, but I think going into it, you have to have a solid foundation of a good relationship with food, a good relationship with your body. And even then it can seriously mess you up. Yeah, I, yeah. I can, I can definitely uh, speak to that a little bit. I mean, I think one of the things that I've talked to uh, a lot of, cause I get obviously a lot of women asking me like, what do you think? Should I go into it? I've always kind of thought about it. And what do you, you know, what are your thoughts? And I, I have a lot of thoughts. I used to actually blog about it. I put a bunch of stuff on Instagram, but I feel like at one, at some point I'm going to want to like really kind of get out my experience, which yeah. you've said earlier in this call, like everybody's experience is individual. So whatever I say, isn't what everyone should do or not do. It's just what my experience is. And I think right. that I've been more willing to just be honest about what the reality of the experience is because I'm not a pro. I'm not making money doing it. I don't have any vested interest in like lying or pretending that things aren't the way that they are. Um, but I think that the biggest advantage for me when I got into it and did it for a few years and had like a lot of fun and like a fair bit of success with it was that I came into it much older than a lot of people. So like I was, I think 29 or 30 when I did my mm -hmm. first competition. So I was already pretty well set in how I felt about myself and my own feelings of self-worth, not related to what I looked like. And right. I knew like, let's be real. Like I'm going to get attention when I have normal body fat or when I have abs, like I, I don't need this. Like I don't need this to feel validated. And I think that people say that people say it a lot and it's not really what they're feeling inside. And like, they don't, not, mean it. They don't mean it. And I'm not saying that I don't like 
people thinking that I look nice. I'm not saying that I don't like people being impressed when I have a six pack. Of course we do. We all love that. (laughs) We all love it. But no, but the difference between feeling like you need to do this and you need to compete and you need to do well or else like, and that's one of the reasons why I think I always did so well because like I'm in the backstage with these, everybody who's, you know, suits are taped up their butts and and they're all like, you know, trying to like do whatever. And people are so stressed out. They're so stressed out. And I'm like this, for those of us who are doing this recreationally, for you to be just in a constant state of like fear and misery, you're doing it wrong. Any sport, yes. if you're doing something that isn't a, prof- and again, like it's different when you're a professional. If this is your life and this is how you make money, you're in a different class. You, you are making sacrifices that are, you're educated about it and you know that you're making sacrifices. Yeah. We're doing this for fun, for a photo shoot to like say we did it and you're fucking miserable. miserable. You should not be doing it. Like, what's, the what what is is the what's the point? What is the point? But again, it's the point is validation, right? And if you are doing it because you think, okay, when I get there and I look this good and I get a trophy, then I'm going to feel good. And I know for a fact, because I've been there and like, we've all been there. Having a six pack does not solve your problems because- No, it doesn't. You might look really good, but your problems are still your problems. Problems are still your problems. And even if you're looking for that external validation and you post your ad pick and you get a thousand likes, guess what? The world still goes on and everyone forgets and no one cares. Nobody cares. Like, well, that's the thing. Nobody cares. Like they really don't. Nobody cares about the way you look and the way you behave more than you do. Right. So I think that, yeah. And again, like having a sort of sense of like self-worth going into it, I think makes a huge difference. But with that said, and like, I, again, I did it in probably the most reasonable, healthy way possible. Like I found a coach who I knew to be natural and this is not like, I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole either. Cause whatever, but my plan was never to take any kind of Right. Um, drugs, because I just, I didn't want to risk my fertility. I don't want to risk my health. And I'm like, I just want to do what I can do. And anything above and beyond that, I just, I don't, I'm not interested. So I found a woman who looked in a way that I enjoyed yeah. and who I knew was not going to pressure me to take drugs. And we did it in a very, very, um, slow and steady kind of way. And in a way that really maintained my health to the best that it could. Um, now there's still that period where when you're like the lowest body fat you've ever been, like there's a couple weeks where you like, know you're skirting the edge of something, but again, yeah. you kind of go into it, like knowing this is a very, you know, short period of time and we're going to do this. And, um, but I really think that it's, yeah, it's important for people to do like the, the kind of mental work first. And I think that it's really mature and, and intelligent of you to recognize these things. It goes back to what you were saying about knowing your triggers. And we all have yeah. triggers. We all have things that we know will lead us down a path that's unhealthy for us. And I think so yeah. many people, addictive personalities, um, people who like have, right, people who have struggled with stuff like this in the past, we tend to, because as we all know, even on a like relatively less intense level, that you have to, to change behaviors, you have to switch something out for something else, right? You yes. can't just get rid of something that's been serving you for whatever reason and just get rid of it and be like, I'll just keep going and see what happens. You have to replace it. So a lot of people end up who are addictive personalities get into ultra marathons or get into bodybuilding because it's a way to distract yourself. It's a way to use that energy. And it's also a way in a lot of ways to condone, um, 
extreme behavior, right? So yeah. um, anyway, I mean, that was a whole long ramble, but I think that it's, it is important for any of these things that, that relate to body image and you having to be a certain size, um, you really need to take like a hard, long look at what you get out of it versus what you could potentially lose, kind of getting into that sort of thing. Absolutely, I agree. And it's really interesting, you said that previously about trading one thing for the other is I got into powerlifting because I was recovering from an eating disorder. So I essentially did trade one addiction for the other. And I mean, when I first started lifting and training, I was obsessed. Like I was, you know, seven days a week, three hour training sessions, sometimes twice a day. I mean, it wasn't the healthiest approach at the time. Like I have since smartened up and I have, you know, found a little bit more quote unquote balance in my training regimen especially now with COVID, I'm not really training. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, you really do trade one addiction for the other in those circumstances. And it's not always about, I mean, yes, you have to recognize your triggers, but also establishing healthy coping mechanisms for when you undoubtedly encounter those triggers, which I think is super important to recognize as well. Yeah. So I want to talk to you too a little bit about how powerlifting has change your attitude towards your body. So you have also talked about your kind of struggles with losing weight during um, chemo and recovery, and then, you know, kind of trying to gain some back and gain some strength back and all this stuff. I mean, first of all, you look amazing. You're gorgeous. Thank you. like, amazing body. Um, but how has the sport itself, um, how has that affected sort of how you feel about your body and, and how you're, what you're capable of. And the reason, like, I'm just kind of prefacing this because again, I feel like I came from sort of a weird space where growing up, I never had a um, conflict with the idea of like being a muscular woman, like for whatever mm -hmm. reason, it's not even because I necessarily grew up with that particularly. Like I had older brothers, I had a very strong mother, but she wasn't like, you know, in the gym, like doing deadlifts all day, but I never, I always just sort of appreciated muscle and strength. And it was always a goal of mine to be strong. Um, and I never had that conflict of like, okay, but if I get strong, am I going to look masculine? Am I going to look weird? And to be fair, like, I know that I'm not like this huge muscle bound woman. Like I know that I'm still <laughs> a relatively, like I try, I'm trying, but like, I used to joke, I used to like kind of laugh when I was a bodybuilder that like, you know, sort of a compliment and a insult, but no one has ever accused me of like, on being on gear because I'm just not that impressive looking, right? Like I, you know, I've worked hard for the muscle that I have, but like no one's ever going to accuse me. Like I don't have veins popping out everywhere yeah. and like striations. <laughs> like I'm, I tried very hard to get the modest amount of muscle that I have, but I never, I've never had that barrier that I think so many women do that we still can't seem to get over yeah. that. It's like, if you lift heavy weights, you're going to look like a big thick dude. And I don't get it. But anyway, so how has that, how is the sport and you, you know, you've got a good amount of, like you're a strong muscular person. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right. It's impressive. But like, did, have, did you ever have any kind of issues as you were getting through sort of like the, dis, you know, disordered, um, approach to eating and then you're getting into this, this sport that requires you to be strong. Um, did you have any kind of issues with that or did you sort of click immediately and, and, um, like, no, I like, like you, I didn't understand why people were like so off put by like a muscular female physique. Like that's still something that I'm trying to achieve. Like, I wish it were that easy for us to pack on muscle because I feel like we have to bust our ass just to get any modicum of muscle definition or like the slightest striation, the tiniest little vein. Like it's so hard for us. And, and even if I were to achieve that or go back to my old, my pre-cancer body and have the same kind of muscle mass and definition that I had, like it is hard to do. 
um, the only thing when I first started powerlifting was I initially wanted to take drugs and I was dating somebody at the time who thank God talked me out of it. He actually told me that he would break up with me if I started taking drugs. And at the time I'm like, well, screw you. I don't want to be told what to do, but it was a blessing because I, I never have. And quite frankly, I never will a whole other story. Like I, you know, props to whoever does take it. Like I don't care, but for me personally, not something I want to go into now. Um, but at the time I'm like, I'm so skinny. I'm so not physically strong and I'm trying to stack up to all of these other incredible female athletes, neglecting the piece of the puzzle that they have been training that way seriously yeah. for years and years and years. And here I am six months to a year into the sport thinking that I can just achieve those results overnight, which I think is common for a lot of us men and women that we want instant gratification and we don't always want to put in the work that sometimes takes decades to achieve and multiple years and serious, serious training and sacrifice to achieve something like that. Um, but my go-to was, like, oh, I'll just take drugs and, and think I'll achieve this amazing physique and this incredible strength level that realistically, even if I were to take, uh, take some, something now, like I genetically am not capable of that. Mm. So that was kind of the only thing that I had a problem with in the beginning, but in, I had a problem also when I was first diagnosed, like I automatically saw myself as a cancer patient and no longer an athlete. So I suffered from some pretty bad body dysmorphia and sort of like an identity crisis at the time because I didn't see my body for what it was at the time. And I saw all the little ways that it was changing and all of the things that cancer was taking from my body. I mean, my body has transformed for better or for worse, I'm not sure, um, over the past year because of that. But I think because of my powerlifting background, like it kind of sharpened my mental fortitude more than anything and helped prepare me for, you know, all of the ups and downs that cancer treatment has kind of occurred. I, although I like to think that I kept a good amount of my muscle mass, um, and physique and strength through treatment, but I lost all of it in recovery. And that's when I started to have the problems of like equating my self-worth to the sport. Like who am I if I'm not a power lifter? Like all of those kind of intricacies that, you know, can kind of unravel from there. Yeah. So what, uh, what kind of work have you done to, to fix that? I mean, is it just sort of like forward progress? Like I'm going to do what I can accept what I can't change right now. Like just sort of yeah. that, that kind of wisdom. Yeah. I mean, it's ongoing. I'm not emotionally in the place that I would like to be. I do still have a lot of days where I'm like, wow, like my body is not what it was. And there are days where I still place too much value on what I look like rather than what I can do. But that's the one thing that the sport has really given me is that the human body is amazing and it is capable of incredible things. So for me, when, whenever I have those moments and I do a lot, like I am not a superwoman. I honestly think back to all the times in treatment that I still trained. My doctors would have a heart attack if they knew that I was squatting, benching, deadlifting with an open catheter in my arm. I hope they never listened to this. <laughs> but I was able to do like all these incredible things, even while kind of actively dying, and it had nothing to do with how my body looked like. And to me, that is more valuable than what I look like aesthetically. I mean, we all want to look good. We want to feel good about ourselves, but... I think it's important to understand like what the human body can do more than what it looks like. 
Yes. Especially the female human body. Let's yes. be real. I mean, look, male human body is cool. It's great. You got like nice big arms and you're strong <laughs> and stuff, but like the amount of the range of miracles that the female body can produce is like a whole we top the cake. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a whole different thing. And yeah, I agree with you. Like one of the things that I really like to talk about a lot from like the sort of fitness perspective on this podcast is and speaking to women specifically, and I think that this is relevant for men too, but I just, it seems so much more prevalent for women is, yeah, this idea that we obviously put way too much stock in how we look and the better we look, the more lovable and likable and better yes. person we're going to be. Um, and I think that if we were taught more, this is still a, like a systemic cultural thing that the way it we is. look matters so much, right? Um, and I don't think that's ever going to go away to a certain extent because like we said before, we're always going to want to look good. We're always going to want to be appealing to other people. We're always going to want to feel good about ourselves. Yep. But I think that if we can balance those scales with like you said, having skills and like learning our body's competencies and learning what we can do. And it can be mm -hmm. certainly physical, but also mental. So when you grow up and you're taught that you're a smart person and that you're capable of things and that you can help other people and that you're good at your job and that you're a good friend and like you do powerlifting or you do a sport where you can like showcase a skill that you have having competency I think builds like real confidence because yes we all know that the confidence of looking good is incredibly fleeting and you know only works till like the next post of you looking cute and getting likes or whatever you know and like eventually these things do go away because yeah we can't all look like JLo until we're 75 so like <laughs> we're gonna have to start we're gonna have to start coming up with other yeah. ways to feel good about ourselves too right so um I really think that there is something to be said for and like I I've done a lot of different sports too and never really had like a huge aptitude for it because I, I think I just don't have the I don't think I have the athlete's mindset to be really good at something like I've always like tried a sport and when I get like a certain level of, of like competency I'm just like yeah I'm good now like when I did the like, CrossFit I was like can I do some like muscle ups and like can I like deadlift yeah. twice my body weight good all right I'm, I'm done here like I just anyway that's like a whole other topic but I do think that the ability to like get into new things and try new skills and learn things and add them to your toolbox, like that is huge for confidence. So if you're yeah. only looking at things based on what your body looks like, that's, that's a very slippery slope. Whereas I know a lot of these people, a lot of these women who get into bodybuilding, powerlifting, CrossFit, whatever it is, if you look at it from like a skills perspective first, and then you realize that this, this uh, body composition thing is like a secondary bonus, that's also great because yeah. your body does change to fit the skills that you're acquiring, right? And that's great. Yeah. The muscular, strong body is attractive. But if you kind of like switch the priorities and prioritize like the abilities first and then looking cute second, you're getting the best of both worlds, right? Yeah. And I really had to do a lot of self-exploration um, through treatment, but honestly, a lot in recovery because I really struggled with how much my body had changed. I mean, I was 137 pounds before treatment, um, like pretty lean, like muscular, like for a five, three petite woman. And after treatment, I was I dropped to 120 pounds after all of my hospital stays, whatever. And then within two months, I went down to like 110 pounds, lost all of my muscle. I was at the gym, literally only squatting the bar. Meanwhile, I'm like an over 300 pound squatter. So like mentally that really messes with you, but more so than the strength level, like my body was so different. And in a weird way, it reminded me of what I looked like when I was suffering from the eating disorders. And it was, 
it was a little bit of a trigger because I had worked so hard for so many years to get myself out of that situation, to be healthy and look healthy and strong. And now here I am two months of taking a couple of medications that ate away all of my muscle mass and some chemo, whatever. And now I'm a skeleton again. And I really had to evaluate what I place my self-worth on. And I realized a lot of it is in the way that I look. Like if I don't look a certain way that I find an ideal body type, then I don't feel good about myself. And it made me think if, if I don't have powerlifting anymore, like what else do I have? Who else am I? Like I have to find other, other areas that I can dive into other hobbies. I started playing the guitar. Because like, what if I, I'm not very good, I'm terrible, but I'm getting there. I'm learning. It's something new. And luckily I, I'm actually competing this fall. I picked out a meet, um, little comeback meet. Nice. But if I didn't have that, like, what else do I have? Like, I can't put all of my stock in the way that I look and the way that my body can perform because one day I am not going to be a powerlifter. I'm not going to perform at a high level. I'm not going to be able to do the things that I am doing now. Like even maybe in 10 years, you don't know what's going to happen. So I really struggled with the fact that my body had changed so much. I didn't want anyone to look at me. I went to the gym in baggy t-shirts, baggy pants. I mean, I know this sounds silly, but like I had no ass and I had a pretty well developed posterior. You got an ass. Yeah. You have an ass. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, nobody can know that I don't have an ass anymore. And that seems so ridiculous to say out loud, but it was true. Like I just didn't want anyone to look at me because I felt like my self-worth was down the tube because what do I have to offer if I'm not this like fit, mm -hmm. attractive woman? Mm -hmm. And that's so disordered in so many ways. And I think a lot of women go through periods of their life when their bodies change because all of our bodies change. Like even if you don't go through something like a cancer, uh, cancer treatment, but like we're women, like that's just the reality of it. Yeah. It's uh, it's a shitty situation, but it's an extremely common one. And I yeah. think the, one of the other big issues is um, the idea that so much of what we consider ideal is completely unrealistic. So, and this is something that I, you know, I don't do a lot of coaching anymore, but when I do kind of work with uh, women one-on-one, -on -one, like I, I do sometimes have people kind of think about this like negative visualization, right? Which is another kind of like stoic thing, but it's like thinking about the worst case scenario and how you would feel or how you could move forward or what it would be like, right? Because it suddenly yeah. makes the situation you're actually in not seem as bad or like you make right. you kind of think about like, okay, well if, and a lot of this is like topical stuff, like it's not like life or death stuff, but it's like, you know, if I'm quarantined for another three months, like just think about it. Like instead of spiraling out, think about, okay, if I have to be in my house for another three months, that's the worst case scenario. How's that going to be? How am I going to feel? How am I going to move forward? How am I going to persevere through this? You walk yourself through this terrifying yeah. thing that's like, you know, freaking you out. And then you can kind of breathe and like go through it again. So I talked to some of my clients where I'm like, they want, they're perfectly healthy. They're perfectly fit, but they don't have defined abs. Like most women don't. And like most women, honestly, frankly, shouldn't have, right? No. Because it's not natural. So nope. I ask people to kind of visualize, okay, if you feel like you're 10 pounds away from your goal weight, and what happens if you never, ever get to your goal weight? What happens if you never get those defined abs? What will you feel? How will your life be? Like, will you still love yourself? Will you still have love from other people? Will you still be able to do the sports you like? Like, 
think about it for a little bit because as yeah. we said before, you know, maybe you get to your goal weight and you realize that the amount of work and bullshit that that took was absolutely not worth it. And once you take your picture and you move on with your life, like there, this, there, you really didn't need to do it. Right. And so, everyone else moves on from liking that one picture. They've already forgotten about it 30 seconds later. So like all of this work is for nothing. And it's hard, I think it's hard for individuals to find the balance between what they consider like settling or giving up and having realistic yet ambitious goals. Like for some people, bodybuilding is a fun, cool experiment. And for me, I learned a lot about my body and yeah. I had a great time with it and it was fun. I wouldn't want to do it forever because it's a lot of work and it's, you know, annoying, but I had a positive experience with it. Lots of people wouldn't. Lots of people would have a really hard time cutting weight for a sport. Lots of people don't. And I think that we just have to, like, it's, it's just hard individual work figuring out, like, what is where is that line that you cross mm -hmm. between this is dysfunctional and unhealthy for me versus I'm just working really hard on a goal. And yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no one answer, right? Like there's no answer to that. We just need no. to figure it out for ourselves. But, um, yeah, I mean, and if you see online too, like even on social media, like there's so much hustle porn out there that it makes everyone think that you need to do the most. You need to exercise the best. You need to have the strictest diet. You need to work for 24 hours in a row. Like all of these things that you just have to do the most of everything. And I think that inherently is just a terrible, terrible message because I think it, it promotes the fact that like, if you want balance in your life, if you don't want to be doing all of these things that you're somehow settling or that you're mediocre or, you know, all of these, th these terms that are being thrown around out there that are not necessarily being spoken about in the most positive way, but yeah we don't all need to be training and eating like Olympic athletes. Like that's not sustainable. And quite frankly, not all of us need to be doing that. And if you want to just run on the beach every Sunday and do your yoga and have your matcha shakes, and that's all you want to do, go for it. Right. Like live your life. Me actually. <laughs> it does, right? Like, like I would love that right now. <laughs> I feel like there's something about like human nature though, where I almost feel like we have to see the extreme and then we fall somewhere in the middle. Like you look at like the David Goggins of the world yep. and you're like, all right, this guy's literally trying to kill himself. Like he's going <laughs> like the most is not even the word. Right. But like you look at somebody like that as inspiration and you can kind of take pieces of it and incorporate it into your life and kind of get better. And I feel like people, we have good intentions to try to do that. Like we look at these fitness models who are completely unrealistic and we think like, okay, I, I know I'm not going to be that, but if I can just kind of like take a workout or two from them, or if I can get the kind of the concept, like, yeah. so I, I understand how it's not all inherently insidious, but it, it does sort of amount to this environment where we're just like creating these narratives that are completely unrealistic. Yeah. And then when we fall short, we think that we suck when really it was actually the goal itself. It just wasn't right. Yeah. You know? Because um, there's so much societal pressure to be great at all of these things and to do all of these things. And, and if we don't achieve all of that, we suddenly feel like we're failures. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we need to get off social media. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this, this is the thing that I struggle with too, because like I, you know, I've done a good job of like starting to cut extraneous social media that I'm just like, uh, who cares about Facebook anymore? Come on. I'm like too old for it. Or I'm, I'm not a family and that's it. 
I even cut that part. I was like, look, if you want to talk to me, like call me or text me. Like, I can't do this anymore. I, I just can't. But anyway, so like I've started to kind of like, uh, you know, curate it a little bit better. Instagram is now the only thing that I use for like either like a combination of personal and professional, but even that I know I'm kind of wasting time. I've done a better job too of like, I don't, I literally don't follow anybody. You know, the whole, like, if you follow somebody and they make you feel like crap, like you, you're an idiot, like you probably shouldn't be following them. So yeah. I've done a good job of like cutting people out that just sort of don't make me feel good. I do a lot less scrolling. I literally like have my like 20 friends that keep showing up across the top and I just look at them. Um, yeah. And so that's better. But like, I recognize that I definitely still like kind of waste a lot of time. And I think that, have you read the book? You can add this to your list. Um, Digital Minimalism. Have you read this? No, but I've been meaning to. That's on my list. Yeah. So Cal Newport, and actually I interviewed him for the this podcast, but when it had another name and all of those episodes have been removed, which is unfortunate because I would just get, like have you listen to the episode. It was really good. But one of the things that he talks about that is so positive about this idea of the fact that we're all just like attached to social media and technology he's not like doom and gloom about it. He's not like, okay, you know, all of these websites are a nightmare and they're all made for us to waste time and feel bad about ourselves. And we're attached yeah. to our phones and it's a night. Like, we know that's true, but he's like, these are tools just like anything else. The poison is in the dose. If you yeah. let it control you, if you let it make you feel bad, then you're misusing it. If you can find a way to use it as a tool that improves your life or your career and helps you connect with people and you're using it properly, there's, there's absolutely an ability to do that. So it's like the concept of kind of empowering yourself to take back ownership of what you're doing. And I think that that reflects back into the way we eat, the way we train, yeah. the way we present ourselves to the world. Like you can do all of this in a way that hurts you or helps you. And so you have the power to figure that out for yourself, right? Yeah, I agree completely. And I like you, I filter everything. Like if I'm following someone and, and they make me feel like crap, or if I think they're just posting like the most ignorant outlandish things that don't align with what I think. And, and more so that like, there's not an opportunity for us to like have a dialogue about they're cut off. That's it. And I feel so much better. Yeah. And now my social media, like it's what I want to post. And if you don't like it, well then don't follow me. I don't mind. Like I could have two followers and wouldn't care. And that's it. But I think social media, it can be a really terrible place and a really dangerous place. Um, but I think it can also be really amazing and a fantastic opportunity to connect with other people, spread information, have these conversations. And sometimes you just want to laugh about a stupid meme. Like that's it. That's it. I mean, but it, it's our responsibility to dictate what we see on our feed and who we interact with. It's not their fault. It's, it's our responsibility to set our social media up that way. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, honestly, some of my favorite podcast guests and probably I would say like fully half to three quarters of my new friends that I've gained in like the last two or three years have been not even necessarily just through social media, but like there's a connection there. So it's like either yeah. I meet you in real life first, like we did, or maybe there's an event and we meet at an event and we follow each other on Instagram and then you become, so yeah, there is totally an ability for this to enrich your life. You just, like you said, you have to, with anything that's coming into your life, it's your responsibility to be the gatekeeper and figure yep. out how you're going to, how you're going to use it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree completely. Okay. So I don't want to keep you all day. This has already been going for a fair bit. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk about moving forward. Um, what's life look like for you? You said you've got a powerlifting competition that you're, you've entered or you're going to enter or I have entered. So I'm signed up for it. I actually was planning on doing one in February, three months post transplant. Cause why not? That seems normal. Um, I ended up pulling out of it because I was 
obviously not ready to compete in a full power powerlifting competition. Um, so I, I'm competing in October, uh, full power, so squat bench deadlift. Um, other than that, I'm hoping to get back to work soon. I've been furloughed due to the whole COVID situation. Um, I'm going to be doing a little bit of traveling once the world opens up a little bit. And until then, I'm doing my best to keep busy. Um, I'm actually moving because I got so bored organizing my apartment that I just decided, fuck it, why not just move to a brand new one? <laughs> are you still staying in the same place though? Like, are you leaving Jersey? Yeah, or? no, it's the same complex. It's literally oh. next door. It's a renovated apartment. It's a little bit of a nicer unit and it's something to do because I'm running out of things to keep me busy. <laughs> There's only so much like drawer organizing you can do. Yeah. It's I mean, I even painted my baseboards and I like sanded. I mean, it, I did a fantastic job. I must say so myself. And all of my drawers are organized. My clock. I mean, everything is perfect. There's like a showroom in here and there's nothing more for me to do. So yeah. I'm moving. <laughs> right, that's good. What's, I don't think I've ever asked you what your day job is. Uh, I work in brand management for an eyewear company. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you, and you're not, you, sorry, you said you weren't sure when you're going to be back or okay. I have no idea. I was working up until mid April remotely after, um, you know, things were shut down and people are working from home. And then since then I haven't been working, but I'm hoping soon we'll be able to go back now that things are opening up a little bit more around the country. Yeah. And what about, uh, what about the travel? What, what do you have planned? Nothing planned yet. Um, I am planning on doing, one big trip this year. I don't know where it will be, but it will be outside of the United States somewhere. By the time that happens, probably it'll be like winter. So I'll probably go somewhere tropical and then I'll postpone my Europe trip to next spring. Cause I prefer to go in the spring than the winter. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know, whatever else happens. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. I mean the travel part, like obviously I'm missing that. I normally am like on a plane once or twice too. a month and I, yeah, I'm very sad about that. And of course, one of the places I usually am is New York, which is now a hot spot that I don't know when I'm going to be back. I don't know when yeah. it's gonna, there's going to be a reason for me to be there. Cause it's kind of scary ghost town at this point. Um, but for you, when you, I mean, I guess we don't know what the world's going to hold in eight, 10 months or, you know, whenever we get on planes or even like, next month, who knows that too. Yeah. But like, do you have any kind of concept of like how travel might need to be specifically, um, different for you? Or would you just kind of like take the extra precautions in terms of, like, um, covering yourself or probably you know. take the extra precautions. Um, I flip flop because I am immunocompromised. Um, but I've also spent the last year of my life, like worrying and being sick and having to do all of these extra things to keep myself safe and stay alive essentially. Um, that now I just want to live my life. I want to go out. I want to travel. I don't want to have to wear a mask. I don't like all these crazy things. So I'm not really sure yet my stance on, on what will happen in that regard. Um, but I think I'll figure it out as the time comes. Yep. That's all we can do. Yeah. Nikki, thank you time. so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been amazing. I'm glad we like, I feel like we got to know each other a little bit better. Yeah. I had a blast. Yeah. I feel like this is like my new, this is the new iteration of Muscle Maven Radio is I'm just going to like call my friends and make you talk to me. I love it. <laughs> so I like it a lot. We're part two, three, four, five, six, whatever. <laughs> I am into it. And yeah, hopefully one of those we can do in person. Cause I think that will be so much fun. Better. 
Um, just remind listeners where they can go if they want to like connect with you or just see your awesome uh, posts on it. Um, so I am on Facebook, but it's Nicole Elizabeth Balcow. I hardly ever use it. So if you're looking to connect, frankly, don't use it. Um, but mostly Instagram, you can go to Nikki B. Is it Nikki B underscore 11? I don't even know my own handle. <laughs> Is that a problem? <laughs> um, this is how I know you're not trying to be an influencer. You're like, I don't even know. Just look yeah, it up. So it's N I K K I underscore B 11. Yes. Got it. And okay. that's, that's it. Definitely give her a follow if for nothing else, but the muscles and eyebrows, but she's got a lot more to offer than that, but those are also great. Okay. All right, Nikki, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Let's uh, have a nice sunny weekend and sun's out, buns out, shall we? That's right. Thank you so much. I had a blast. Okay, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, if you know anyone struggling with anything really, um, including disordered eating, serious health diagnosis, trauma of any kind, this might be a good one to share with them. Um, may or may not, but maybe just for some commiseration, for some sense that none of us are alone in our struggles. And uh, I'd really appreciate you, as always, sharing the podcast, tagging me on social media, um, if you like, at The Muscle Maven. Definitely, absolutely go check out Nikki on social media. And she has a highlight um, section on her Instagram that shows the entire story, her, her cancer diagnosis and recovery um, journey. So definitely check that out. You can always do me a huge solid by leaving me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so that my show can move up the old rankings and get in front of more people. So that's it. Thank you again to my awesome friends at Bubs for supporting me and my show. I use their MCT and collagen powder every single day. It's the best quality uh, that I've come across, and the products make a tangible improvement in my health. So this one's a really practical, no-brainer partnership. Like It literally improves my health. And it's really a good product. And the company gives 10% of their earnings to charity. I mean, I don't know many other companies who are doing it like they're doing it. My nails are literally getting so long right now from this collagen. They're so healthy and strong that it's becoming impractical. They look good, but like it's, it's a problem. So if you want to have that problem, check it out. If you have any questions about their products, don't hesitate to reach out and uh, ask. And you can save a full 20% off their products with the code Muscle Maven at bubsnaturals.com. So that's it. Thank you as always for sharing your time with me. I hope you join me next Tuesday for the next episode. And as always, I appreciate you and have a great day.